Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Hey, on a number of the chairs, you'll see a little yellow uh, sign-up sheet. The uh, base camp, which is our children's ministry, is uh, looking for people just to uh, partner with them, join hands in uh, children's ministry for all or part of the summer. And we'd invite you just to take this and give us some thought and put it before the Lord and, uh, and give some consideration to serving, serving in children's ministry this summer. Before we look at the scriptures this morning, I'd like to give you about a four-minute family update about uh, Journey Finances. And uh, so, uh, as you know, nearly everyone has been impacted by the uh, financial issues that have affected our nation. It's uh, hit us individually, personally. It's hit our companies and businesses. And uh, nonprofits and churches are not exempt from those realities. A couple of times in the last uh, few months, our lead pastor has told us that our, uh, our income was falling behind expenditures. Along with this, we've had some regular updates in the weekly. After reviewing the response, our leadership has concluded that everyone is doing the best they can in a difficult economic climate. As a result, in the face of these economic challenges... Our leadership feels we must live within our means and the giving stream that you have provided. And so it's with sadness that we let you know that for economic reasons, we've laid off four of our staff this week. And it's especially difficult because they've been hard workers and companions in ministry. So I'd like to show you some numbers. So you'll just look up at the screen. The numbers at the top, the three numbers across the top, represent how our budget is divided up. 70% of our budget is related to personnel expenditures. It is the operational philosophy of Journey that good people produce quality ministry as well as enhance the potential for growth. This has been true at Journey, where we have shown growth in every year of our existence. 10% represents the fixed expenditures like rent for this facility, and 20% represents ministry and related expenditures. Our leadership mandate, based on giving patterns, was to reduce our budget expenditures by 18%. That amounts to a reduction of approximately $4,000 a week. As you can observe, there's no way to reduce a budget by 18% or $4,000 per week without making significant reductions in the personnel expenditure line. Therefore, along with the layoffs, six of the remaining staff have had reductions in their pay benefit packages as well. And as we lean into the preparation of a budget for the next fiscal year, which will be operational in about 100 days, we realize that this process is not over and that additional adjustments affecting personnel expenditures may be needed. So our leadership invites your prayers, giving, and support. And such shifts inevitably result in the need to share the work of ministry here in the Gallatin Valley more broadly. If you have questions, we sure invite you to use the comment cards and uh, our leadership will endeavor to answer them. A common question might be, how can we build a building if we're reducing some of our budget expenditures? And the answer is that our leadership respects the wishes of the donors. So no general budget money is nor can be used for building expenses, and no building fund money can be used for general budget expenses. 
Our lead pastor, who's on a work leave, will be communicating with you further by email this week. Now, despite these challenges, there are really a lot of great things going on at Journey, and uh, those represent the bottom two or the last two numbers there. We have had uh, 270 people who've given their hearts to Christ this year, and Journey numerically is growing at a rate of 8.3% for the year. So uh, we invite your continued prayers and participation and involvement in what the Lord's doing. Let's pray as we look to the Scriptures. Father, we thank you that in all the situations of our life, you have promised, even in death, to be with us. Lo, I am with you always. And so, Father, we're grateful that in the circumstances we all find ourselves in, in these difficult months in the life of our country and in our personal walks, that your Spirit is with us, you've not abandoned us, and in fact, you are greater than the circumstances we face. So we thank you for that. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would bring it to life in our spirit and show us how to respond to that light. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, we'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 10, and if not, the scripture will be up on the screen. The beginning of Acts chapter 10, God shows up to a Gentile named uh, Cornelius. He's a Roman military leader, and the Lord to Cornelius invites him to send some men down to Joppa where they'll find Peter. And that's where we pick up this story in Acts chapter 10, verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on a roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened. Something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. And they called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. I'd like to uh, reflect with you from the Scripture this morning on how God takes hidden parts of reality and makes them visible to you and I. 
You and I look through our lives, every person in this room, we look through, we look through a lens at the reality. And because of the lenses we choose, some reality we see and some reality we don't. And what does the Lord do to help us see things that we otherwise cannot see? When I was 14, my uh, father and mother decided that my brother and I would join them on a trip to Los Angeles to uh, visit my aunt and uncle who lived there. Now, I grew up on a farm in northwestern North Dakota. I wasn't off that farm very much. I remember maybe once a week we'd go to Williston, 18 miles away, and my dad would give me a 50-cent piece and tell me not to spend it all in one place. That was kind of uh, my life. And uh, we got to Los Angeles, and in a course of one week, at 14, three things happened to me, all of which brought me into a new reality. Reality number one was that I always loved baseball, and so uh, my dad had got my brother and I tickets to the, a doubleheader on a Sunday afternoon between the Dodgers and the Braves at Chavez Ravine Dodger Stadium. He was going to spend the afternoon with uh, his brother-in-law, and so he dropped us off at the gate. I'm 14, my brother's 12, we go to the will call window and get our tickets, and we become part of the largest sellout crowd for the Dodgers that year. When we walked into the upper decks of Chavez Ravine, we were part of a crowd of 55,000 people. I'd never seen 55,000 people. I went to a high school where the entire high school had 40 students. I, however, was in the largest class of 12. And something internally happened when I saw 55,000 people. I couldn't define it. If I walked out of that stadium and somebody asked me, but I knew suddenly I was not alone. There was this world that existed so different from the world I had lived in that it brought into question whether the picture I was working with was complete. During that same trip, we drove to a eastern edge of L.A. to visit some relatives. In order to get there, we drove through Watts. Watts is a black district, an all-black district of Los Angeles. My dad, driving through Watts, came to a stoplight. And we were sitting at that stoplight when I absentmindedly simply looked out and realized that the only white people I could see were inside the car. Now, on the part of L.A. that I, or part of North Dakota that I lived, cultural diversity was when a Swede moved in. Because <laughs> it was like Norwegian, like Ludafisk Norwegian. My mother's maiden name is Ingebrigtsen. <laughs> and there, it didn't appear to be a traumatic event. But to this day, I remember the emotional shift when I realized for the first time in my life, I'd only seen personally on a couple occasions up till that time a black person. 
My dad would sometimes go to the doctor in Minot, North Dakota, 100 miles away, and there was an Air Force base in Minot. And because of the Air Force base, there were some black airmen. And a couple times in Minot, I had seen an individual black airman. It's the third thing that happened. We were going to go across the border to Tijuana. <laughs> All right. It was a traumatic trip. I <laughs> crossed the border into Tijuana just to do some shopping. And as we went over this bridge that goes over the river, there were these little kids, dirty, kind of scruffy, selling gum. That was the first time in my life I had ever personally encountered poverty. And it shifted how I viewed reality. You see, we all have lenses through which we look at the world. Otherwise, we couldn't navigate. You have to have a system in order to navigate life. And we develop a system. We're born into a family and a culture. And we have a learned history. And we develop by our history and by the culture we're born into and by the families that we're a part of, a set of values, behaviors that are acceptable and unacceptable, um, wisdom that helps us move through life and things that are viewed not as wise. And we begin to endorse and embrace those values and those perspectives and those behaviors. Another thing happens. We, we live in a particular setting, and as we live in that setting and see things, we give meaning to the things we see. Which means that eventually, whenever I look at something, it reflects back me. Because I'm the one that named it. I'm the one that gave it meaning. So, I encounter circumstances and people and situations, and I give that meaning, and because I named it and gave it a meaning, when I encounter it, it reflects me back. And then I begin to develop friendships, and most people very naturally develop friendships around affinity groups. Affinity means simply I hang around people that look like me. We're in a small group, and all but one person in that group look like me. You're already thinking, that's a dangerous group. <laughs> but you know, we're all about the same age, we're all married, we all have kids about the same age, we, we have common journeying experiences, and we like that. There's nothing wrong with that. But it also affirms the lens through which I see reality. Now that approach allows me to navigate through life, but it also brings some clarity to some reality, and it blocks out other reality. So imagine now I'm like a post a person working at the post office, and I work in the back room, and I sort mail. And I've got six slots, and mail comes in, data comes in, and I put them in my six slots. 
And then all of a sudden, a piece comes, and it's either too big for one of those slots, or it's addressed in a way that it doesn't fit in one of those slots. And so I can either try to force it into a slot, or because it doesn't fit, I'll set it on the edge of the table, and what often happens then is either I knock it off and it gets lost, or I lay something else on top of it, and eventually it just becomes invisible. So I just have, I have some slots. You have some slots. And every time data comes in, you throw them into one of those slots. And we navigate life. And when something comes into our life that doesn't fit a slot, we usually have one of two responses. We either ignore it, or if someone tries to force it on me, we get mad. Because it doesn't fit our slots. Now, I've, I've preached about 1,500 sermons in my life. And I can tell you, the one sermon that made more people angry than anything else I've ever preached. One of the reasons I can tell you that, because I was so taken back by the response. I once preached a sermon on let people be. <laughs> And I preached it out of a scripture where Jesus is talking to Peter about how Peter is going to die. And Peter looks over to John and he says, well, well, how about him? And Jesus said, what is that to you? That phrase has become one of the primary phrases I use personally to navigate life. Because you know, there is in all of us, from the beginning of the fall, the inclination to walk around with a yardstick and measure one another, assess one another. Not just hold the Bible up so that I know how to behave, but hold the Bible up so I can evaluate how you're doing. Always measuring, always evaluating, always assessing. If you go into Genesis and you look at what happened in the fall, the beginning of the fall was not Eve taking a piece of fruit. The beginning of the fall was Eve, separate from Adam and God, judging whether that fruit on her own would be a wise thing. The Bible says when she decided that it looked good, that it would be good to eat, and that it would make her wise, then she took the distance between her judging and evaluating a situation apart from Adam and apart from God, the distance between that and taking the fruit was just one slippery step. So it's our inclination. But you know, in the Christian world, there's often this rather toxic right to evaluate one another. And I, I didn't actually know how deep that ran until I preached just let people be. What is that to you? And so once in a while, when I get fussed about what somebody else is doing, and you know, the Bible says I see through a glass darkly. So number one, I don't even see what I'm doing very clearly, let alone what you're doing. And number two, I, I seldom have all the, all the facts and number three, even when I have the facts, I, I don't always see the motive. 
When I get fussed about something, I, I just say to myself, what is that to me? And God uses that little phrase to sit me down and settle me down and say, you know, no, really, you got enough to worry about without worrying about them. Now, I say that to say, why would that make somebody so mad? Because it was messing with their slots. Now, I bring all that up to suggest to you this. The scripture that I read to you is the story, the story of a man who let God work outside of his box and add a slot to his life that did not exist. Peter was a man who had been taught as a Jew. The Jews felt that they were special people before the Lord. They had strict laws that governed their culture and values that guided them. You'll notice in the reading that when the, when the vision came to eat, Peter said, I've never eaten an unclean thing. Never eaten an unclean thing. I have been loyal to the traditions and the values and the behaviors that are part of the culture that I function in. I work inside the box that I've built to make sense of my life. And the Lord comes to him in a vision. And the vision is barely done when Cornelius' men arrive and they take him to Caesarea and bring him into Cornelius' house. And one of the first things Peter says is, you all know that it is unlawful for me, a Jew, to even be in the house of a Gentile. And God was messing with his boxes. You and I can learn some things by reading. There are some books I've read that had a fairly profound impact on me. Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by D. Brown. And the history of the Native Americans as the country moved west. For Us the Living, the life of Medgar Evers, the civil rights leader written by his wife. Coming out of my North Dakota background, those were jarring books. But most of the time, most of us will not make huge or significant adjustments in our life. We will not mess with that box. We will not add a slot unless something else brings it to us. And I'd like to show you in the last few moments... The two tools God uses in order to get us to add a slot or to enlarge the box that we use to navigate life. And here are the two tools. He uses people and he uses dramatic events. He uses people and he uses dramatic events. Let me read you some names. Moses and the burning bush, a dramatic event. Gideon and the visitation of an angel, a dramatic event. Esther 
and Mordecai urging her to appeal to the king for the, her people. People. Nehemiah and the meeting of the refugees from Jerusalem. People. Isaiah and the death of King Uzziah. Dramatic event. Peter and the vision that we just read. Dramatic event. Paul and the blinding on the road. Dramatic event. Zacchaeus and the invitation of Jesus that he was going to go to his house. People. Again and again and again, if I want to work outside of my box, if I want to see stuff that, that my history and my experience has made invisible, God will use people and dramatic events to do that. So let's have a brief look at those two things. People. You and I gravitate to people for which we have an affinity. But often, in order to make shifts in my life, I must gravitate to people for which I have little affinity. And non-affinity relationships become the primary tools of growth in my life. Not affinity relationships. Affinity relationships give me a sense of safety and belonging and care. All vital to human beings. Personal growth is more likely to occur in non-affinity relationships. Catch this little phrase. Along with what is that to you that governs my life in a great deal. Here's another phrase that governs my life. The people in my life today sustain what is in my life today. If I want something somewhat dramatic or significantly different in my life today, it is not likely that the people in my life today are going to produce that. I will have to add a relationship. Because more often than not, people change people. And so in my life, as, I'm, as, I, as I navigate my life, and I see where I think God might be taking me, I start to look for someone who lives in that world that I do not presently live in. Someone for whom that world, that other dimension, that additional slot is normal for them, even if it's not normal for me. And many of the ways I come to Scripture and many of the ways I see reality is not because I sat with a book over in the corner and came up with a great idea. It is because I started to journey with someone who moved the veil away and helped me see a reality that had always been there but that I had never seen before. Nehemiah was pretty content in the palace of the king where he served as the cupbearer until some refugees showed up at the palace from Jerusalem. And he asked, it appeared almost in a nonchalant way, how are things back in the old city? And when they said, things are terrible and in disgrace, the walls have been torn down and we are vulnerable and under attack, 
They brought to him a reality that had not been part of his existence. And it changed how he saw his world. When God wanted to give Peter this truth. That the gospel of Jesus Christ would be for all people. Jew and Gentile. He knew that for Peter that was a bridge too far. And one of the first things he did was to bring him into contact with the Gentile hungry for Jesus. And he ushered Peter in to a home that Peter would have never gone in on his own. The second tool God uses is dramatic experience. An experience that may be miraculous, but sometimes is just jarring because of the difference that it represents. So when God's trying to tell Moses, who had already failed in Egypt, I'm going to have you go back go up against the most powerful army in the world at that time and leave a bunch of scruffy slaves who hadn't had a spear or a military armament in their hand for generations, lead them out of that country. He didn't say to Moses, hey, I got a good idea. Moses is walking through the wilderness and there suddenly is a burning bush. And that burning bush, that dramatic event was God's invitation to Moses to consider a reality that had been outside of his scope up to that time. And so when God shows up to Peter, he knows he can't just talk Peter into it. And so he gives Peter a vision of unclean animals and reptiles and says, eat. Peter, going back to his history, says, I would never eat something like that. And Jesus, using it as a metaphor, God using it as a metaphor, is reminding him. Remember, the story says it happened three times. Reminding him not to call the Gentile unclean if God himself is calling him clean. And he used dramatic events. You and I can choose some dramatic events. Instead of an affinity group, I might decide that I'm going to be part of a book club where I know that most of the people around the table are going to have a value system different than mine and are actually going to recommend books to read that are going to espouse views of the world that are very dissimilar to my views of the world in reality. And that's going to ruffle me. And it's going to move the pieces around on the table. And you know what else it's going to do? It's going to send me scampering into the Bible. And it's going to send me to my friends to ask them to pray. And I'm going to start praying differently as that event, that book club event, that discussion happens every Tuesday. Because that tension, I don't mean tension as in anxiety, I mean tension as in the cable of a bridge. That tension starts stretching me and forcing me to see a reality. 
to see ideas and to see people differently? Or you and I might be very orderly. John was telling me that him and his wife pack for a trip very similar to my wife and me. Takes her hours and it takes me minutes, you know. And they're very similar. We all have systems. Our systems make our life work. And maybe your system is very orderly. I just put some cassette tapes. I know, I know, the world of cassette tapes is done. But nevertheless, I cannot find the greatest hits of Willie Nelson in any format that's equal to this one cassette tape I have. But you know, I have a, like, my, my sermon notes are like, I write them on the sides of the page, and they're all over the place. But when I'm putting tapes on a shelf, like if they're dated or something, they better be in order. You better not be knocking them off when you dust. You see? And what if, because I'm orderly, and I live in a pretty orderly culture here in the United States, and so it's not hard for me to imagine that God is orderly, and after all, didn't, didn't Paul said, say, God does everything decently and in order? And then I decide I'm going to take a mission trip. And I'm going to go to Rwanda, where this little African country of 9 million people in less than one year killed 1 million of themselves. Whole villages where the only people living are children. Men, women, and children killed. Not a person in the country that either wasn't killed, didn't kill somebody, didn't know somebody who was killed, or didn't know somebody who did the killing. An entire nation traumatized. And I walk through those streets, and I start to wrestle with evil and an orderly God and what mercy looks like. And suddenly my world starts to shift, and I have to start answering questions and going to the Lord for answers that as long as I stay in my comfortable system that is in a comfortable system, questions I don't have to ask. So if you're looking for a significant change in your life, it mostly won't come just because you read a good book. Though that can be helpful. It will come because of people and dramatic events that launch you into another reality just as real as the one you presently live in but a reality that helps you see God in a fresh way. And so here we are at 9.54 on a Sunday morning in Bozeman, Montana in the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are here in part because one man 2,000 years ago let God take him to a place that he could never have imagined he would go. From Joppa to Caesarea into the living room of a Gentile.
And instead of insisting, I'm only going to work with my six slots, he let God be God. And we get to go to heaven. So, why don't we bow our heads for prayer and set your things aside and... uh, And just as we take a moment with our heads bowed and nobody's looking around and we're not going to do anything that will embarrass you. But is there something in your life where you'd like to see a significant shift? A change that's more than something cosmetic around the edge, but rather something you know takes you into uncharted territory. Requires a box to be added to your slots the Lord tells you hey I got a way I use people and dramatic events to usher in a new reality to you and you and I we can embrace that today we can say Lord there's some stuff I want to have happen in my life and I can't even see it that clearly because it's outside what I normally know So, Father, today I'm just praying. I'm praying, Lord, I'm going to open my life to people and to the potential of choosing a dramatic event to help me step into something new, to see you in a new way, a powerful way. Maybe even you, like Peter, are a person God wants to use to bless someone else in a way that you can't even conceive it. And today he's just inviting you to consider that that might be possible. And you can just pray right where you're seated. You say, Lord, I I want to open my life to that. I don't know entirely what that looks like, but there's some shifts I want to have go on, and I'm going to invite people and the potential of dramatic event to help that happen. So we're just going to wait a moment. If you want to pray and dialogue with the Lord, you do that. And just to honor the Lord, so our heads are bowed in prayer. Would you just, if you're praying this morning and you're talking to the Lord about that, just to honor Him, would you just lift your hand up and put it down and say, you know, I'm asking the Lord to help me with that. Yeah, all through here in the middle, you bet. Over here on the left, on the right. Again, over here on the right, way in the back on my right. Way in the back, yeah. Father, thank you. Thank you that even though we see through a glass darkly, you nudge us along and bring us to new places filled with life, both for ourselves and others. Honor these who slip their hands up. Give them a new picture of what you want and can do. In Jesus' name, amen.